It is midday and you are tuned into For the Record on FBI Radio and we are very, very grateful and uh, humbled to have a legend uh, of the Sydney music scene in the studio. Mr. Paul Mack is here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us thank on the show. Uh, legend's a strong word, but I was I'll, say, I'll go with it. I think the word is definitive force. Ah, there we go. Ah, thank you. Maybe thank that sounds much. even better. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, but Paul, you are so important to definitely the Sydney local scene, no doubt the Australian local scene, um, as one half of Itching Scratchy, one half of Stereogamous. You are a producer, songwriter, you've worked with some other legends. You literally just rattle on yeah. forever about all the list of achievements. <laughs> I like being half of something. It's my favourite thing. Half um, of the dissociatives. There you go. Yeah. There we go. Um, so over the next hour, we're going to be uh, racking Mr. Paul Max brain about his brand new album, Mesmerism, fresh on Here to Hell. So stick around right here on For the Record. If you have anything you wanted to uh, mention or to say, shoot us a text on 0409 945 945. Now, there is so much to unpack here. <laughs> Can you briefly walk us through how you got um, Mesmerism together? This title track uh, I read, you went back to school. Mm. You are studying still a yep. doctorate of music at right. the conservatorium and you were taking a Fundamentals of Computer <laughs> Music class. I'm picking out what you're putting down. Mm. Um, in an article on Pile Rats, you mentioned that the song was born out of like a pattern of scale music. Mm. Tell me more. Um, it was weird. It's like it's weird being the old guy going back to school. No. So I don't know, and I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. It was like um, this class was super duper. Like it was so hard. It was like about um, there's this program called Max MSP, which is just you know a way of sort of designing, coding, whatever you sort of want to that's super popular with like mega difficult sort of art nerds and sort of performance artists, like it can do anything kind of thing. But consequently, it's also quite impenetrable. And one of the exercises that we had to do that week was um, come up with a sort of a list of 16 things that had eight things in them that you could make a sort of list and a collection out of. And I was like, what do I do? So anyway, I just picked some modes because I had eight notes in them. And just sort of made this thing. And then, of course, to me, it immediately was like, oh, I love the sound of this. This is really cool. So I just put that into a program that I could deal with, Dableton Live, and just sort of spewed the MIDI over and, and just felt really, felt really in love with the pattern that it was making. And so I was like, sort of forgot about the whole exercise that I was supposed to be doing and just went, this is a really cool track. At the same time, I was doing this, like, I was just really sick of what I had been doing, which is writing sort of melancholic dance pop breakup songs about my relationships. I was just so over it. And I was trying to find new ways of working. So I was trying to find like an external starting point. So this was like, okay, here's a cool external starting point. And I was also doing this weird thing where just to get in the habit of making music fun again, I was whatever the word of the day that came up on my computer screen that morning, I'd try and write a track that sounded like it. And the word of that day was mesmerism. So it was like, wow, I've got this hypnotic pattern I'm going to write a track called Mesmerism. And so that was the starting point and just sort of followed it to its logical conclusion. So it starts off with the the patterns of the modes and then the next section I just applied that to drum sounds and then the next section I sort of, instead of doing it uh, vertically, I did it horizontally so it became like rhythms. And just sort of, just what, what musical info can I get out of this pattern? Mm. And that became the track. To me it's represented in the artwork. Ah, uh, yeah. Quite, like, specifically, which is 
maybe not a big deal, but worth mentioning that uh, typically the Heat of Hell covers have been the same, just inverted different colours. And this album kind of sounds like it was so, so much fun to make. Was that kind of something you were thinking about while you were making it that you wanted the listener to experience I, that as well? I, the cool thing about it with that sort of word of the day exercise, it was never really thought of as a finished product. So, for example, just the mesmerism thing was like, okay, here's an exercise. I'm going to just write a track following those principles, whatever. And then the next one came along. So, okay, and now here's another track following these other principles. Mm. And then it sort of came up with the the guy who does the videos. And there's a video for each track as well up on YouTube somewhere. And it's like um, he suggested a gig. And it's like, okay, well, I've kind of got 20 minutes of music. So maybe we could write some more. And then maybe I've got a live show. So it sort of turned into a live show for Vivid, I don't know, a year or two ago. And then at the end of that, I did a second live show. And then it was like, oh, I've got an album. So it was more like an afterthought to actually release this stuff. So it's just written quite freely just to try stuff out and have fun, which yeah. is cause the rest of your my career had just been really like, you know, I need a single, you need an album, what genre are you in? There were lots and lots of rules attached to it, which it's just weird. Like you start off in itchy and scratchy when you're 20-whatever doing the weirdest stuff you can and then slowly over time it's it's you and the influence of the industry on you you start to narrow what you do and I just felt like I'd hit an end point of that it's just like I'm sick of doing this I want to do something else so the album was more just a freedom of expression without any thoughts about you know financial reward or how it's going to go or how it would be perceived it was just like let's just go and see what happens sounds very cathartic it was <laughs> if you just tuned in for the record uh that is the lovely voice of paul mack right here on fbi radio with me maya billick and dan gordon we're gonna go right back into a bit of mesmerism uh his album that came out this year which we're unpacking over the next 45 minutes this one is called seeking a home in the goldilocks zone
Up top you heard Seeking a Home in the Goldilocks Zone, and after that one you heard Nightingale featuring Lamorna Nightingale. We're talking to Paul Mac about his album Mesmerism this week on For the Record. Let's get a little bit nerdy for a minute. Sure. You were unintentionally making a record. You mentioned it was an afterthought, mm. um, but you've also said that you've written something you've never written before in Mesmerism, mm. and you had a different way going about the recording process and you were just taking different sound recordings of friends tell us a bit more about what struck you the most about like a not forced approach i suppose it's it's less note based so i think what was frustrating me that i'd always sat down either at the piano then on, on my second album i got a electric piano like a world it's just so it'd be something different but it was always really notey so I'd always sit down and, you know, inevitably start with like A minor seventh chord or something, or just some kind of really noty, sad chord progression, because that's what I'm sort of drawn to. And I just made a rule that I would not do that on this record. So it had to be external. So it had to be trying to find um, some sort of pattern or some kind of audio recording or a field recording or just anything else as the starting point. 
and then and then I can add my sadness to it. But, but I just had to find something else to step out of, um, you know, uh, just a place that you can be too familiar in, I suppose. Mm. Now, uh, I have to ask, because I feel like it's another strong point of the record, um, which is the song Redfern Address in Memory of Vision, um, which samples a pretty important speech by Paul Keating, but in particular, you didn't just chuck in uh, an audio of this speech onto some music. You specifically edited parts um, that were addressing the Anglo-Saxon white society, white audiences to hear. What made you want to do this? Um, well, for a start, it was 13 minutes long, and it was like, and it's you know a recording of a very significant event that, and it was like, but I felt like it was a really important speech, and um, I don't, I just felt like I don't feel I have the place to talk on behalf of Indigenous people or anything. It was more like what was important about the speech um, to the colonisers is that acknowledgement that he made that it was our... We're the the one who fucked it up. Yeah, Yeah. so that to me felt like a way of expressing that and just kind of putting it back in the conversation is the way I like to think of it the most because it's just, you know, fuck that's significant that the Prime Minister would say that it was the first time, you know, since, you know, 17-whatever, that it's it was said and it's I think it's really important so it was like once I made that choice it just felt like okay this is meaningful because it's it's I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody else but it's something that I think we should all you know white people should all listen to and have a think about and at least be open to um discussions about treaty or you know statement from the heart or anything that um you know, the Indigenous community is saying, we should just listen. Um, and I think that what he was saying um, opens the door to that a little bit and it's something worth fucking remembering and listening to again. Mm. When was the moment, because I read that you tried a few different speeches, a few different um, pieces of important people talking. Mm. When was the moment when you realised this was... This was the sample to use. I was like, because initially it was, you know, way vaguer than that. It's like, oh, I'd love to do something with yet, you know, yet another external starting point, a spoken word piece. And, you know, I was thinking, well, what's an inspiring orator that would be, you know, good to work with? And, you know, I was thinking Maya Angelou and other people like that. And I was like, oh, just get out, stay in your lane, you know, and predictable. And it's not my culture, like... I can't use that. And so, but then I thought, well, it's Australian. I thought, well, the only, you know, the most significant is Paul Keating. And it was, it was weird. So I started editing it together. It took on a real power. And there's um, a moment where you can hear, you know, the crowd respond and sort of, you know, we took the children from their mothers and the crowd goes, you know, they really suddenly go from, you know, okay, we're here to fuck, we're really here. And it's, you know, to this day, I've probably heard that track 200 times, mixing it and writing it or more. And that moment still, you know, makes the hairs go up on me. It was just such a powerful moment. And then it was like, I suppose as that was coming together and I was just providing a sort of soundtrack or home for it to sit within and support it, it sort of took on a new, um, 
uh, place. And so the first three and a half minutes is, you know, the speech that's talking to us. And I suppose the second three minutes is just a reflection on that. And right here on FBI Radio 94.5, digital radio and streaming at fbiradio.com, here is the song in question, Redfern Address in Memory of Vision. Ladies and gentlemen, well, I'm very pleased to be here today at the launch of Australia's celebration of the 1993 International Year of the World's Indigenous People. We non-Aboriginal Australians should perhaps remind ourselves that Australia once reached out for us. Didn't Australia provide opportunity and care for the dispossessed Irish? Did it not for the poor of Britain, the refugees from war and famine and persecution in the countries of Europe and Asia? If it isn't reasonable to say that if we can build a prosperous and remarkable harmonious multicultural society in Australia, surely we can find just solutions to the problems which we sent to the first Australians, the people to whom the most injustice has been done. And as I say, the starting point might be to recognise that the problem starts with us, the non-Aboriginal Australians. It begins, I think, with an act of recognition. Recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance and our prejudice and our failure to imagine that these things could be done to us. With some noble exceptions, we failed to make the most basic human response and enter into their hearts and minds. We failed to ask, how would I feel if this was done to me? As a consequence, we failed to see that what we were doing degraded us all. But there's one thing today we cannot imagine. We cannot imagine that the descendants of people whose genius and resilience maintained a culture here through 50,000 years or more, through cataclysmic changes to the climate and the environment, and who then survived two centuries of dispossession and abuse, will be denied their place in the modern Australian nations. We can't imagine that. We cannot imagine that we'll fail. And with the spirit that is here today, I'm confident that we won't fail. I'm confident we will succeed in this decade. Thank you very much for listening to me.
The starting point might be to recognise that the problem starts with us, the non-Aboriginal Australians. One of our favourites of the year, Paul Mack's Mesmerism. We're taking a few tracks off that. That one was called Chanel Hill featuring Jason Noble and up before that one. Definitely one of uh, my favourite tracks of the year, Redfern Address in Memory of Vision. It seems like an overarching theme across the record is like feeling. Uh, a few weeks ago we spoke to Loflung who kind of uh, mentioned the same thing. He very much is inspired by mood and feeling and trying to recreate that and throughout mesmerism there are in a different sense like peaks and lows and rather than there being a standout single or a standout pop song there are peaks and lows with uh, sound and feeling and like falling melodies if that makes sense yeah I I think that's just my musical DNA like I I can't not do feelings and particularly sort of melancholic feelings (laughs) but um and there's you know you always got your sort of melodic and harmonic handprints fingerprints on whatever you do because that's kind of the language that you use but in this case I mean a lot of the processes and software that you use you're creating sort of you know super weird sound worlds um but at the end of the day, for me, I always try and make it make emotional sense because I do care about having some kind of connection with either myself or whoever else is listening to it rather than here's my noise project because I find that kind of boring. So it's more making as as weird a sound world as you can but somehow connecting it to um, the heart. I think that's one of the best things about this album, um... To me, I, I feel like some, not, not all, obviously dance music and electronic music works in the album format, but I feel like sometimes in the album format it gets a little bit lost because it's maybe like a, a repackaged uh, version of the same idea for 40, 45 minutes. But th- with this album, I feel like you've kind of really nailed that, you know, let's hit every kind of scope on electronic music, but really make it work as a whole. Yeah, I think it, it was, as I was kind of saying, I was never that conscious that it was going to be an album, but I think because it all came from a similar place of um, starting with an external starting point. So in Mesmerism, it was those patterns. In you know, Redford Dress, it was a spoken word thing. In Flamenco, it was a recording of a Flamenco dance studio. It was like starting with something else and then trying to make sense of it in your human sort of way so because they all had a similar kind of guiding force I think it works together as a body of work kind of thing but um, it was never dance music but it was mm. you know there's probably cataplexy has got a four on the floor and that's about it the rest of it's pretty fucking weird so it was like <laughs> at that, that was, there was a liberation in that as well because I suppose within electronic music and dance music it was always sonically weird and interesting but if you you do get really genre struck, it's like, and what sort of dance music do you make? And these are the rules for that genre. Mm. It's a lot of music can fall into that sort of vortex. So I suppose in this case, it was letting go of that, um, and then at the end, going, oh shit, I need one four and a four song, and that was kind of flexy. <laughs> well, that's kind of my other favourite thing about this album is it doesn't really exist in any sort of world. It it kind of makes um, its own rules up as it goes along, which I think is a in my opinion, is a, is a defining feature of like really good records when they kind of 
don't feel like they have to lean on any old rehashed ideas. They can kind of make things up as they go along. Was that something you were thinking about? I suppose the, the music that I listen to or the music that excites me is, you know, if, if I'm listening to you know, the radio or Spotify Discover or whatever, it's just this wall of stuff. And then every now and again, a track just pokes through that goes, oh, where are we going now? Yeah. And that's the one I save into a playlist and into a mood or whatever. And I suppose I just wanted to make music like that. That was a whole album of tracks that just make you go, what's this? <laughs> <laughs> These constraints that you've mentioned that were a big, like I think, mental block for you, it sounds, mm. before, is are those the things that led you to previously say you were never going to make another Paul Mac record? Um, yeah, I suppose so. It's like, I mean, like, I'm not dissing any of those three Paul Mac albums. In fact, I, you know, I, I still like the art of it. I like a lot of what was being said. I like a lot of the vocal, the feature vocalists. I like a lot of the experiments that happened with them. But it just felt like after the third one saying like, oh, no, I think I'm done and mm. I think everyone else is done it's like it's I've well and truly said what I want to say in that format um, so it did it just felt like it was time to move somewhere fresh just going back to uh, you going back to school real quick do you feel like that experience has kind of made you more eager or like excited to kind of work on your own music has it kind of like rebirthed the Paul Max solo um, solo works? Yeah, but I, I think now, um, as opposed to you know three or four years ago, I think Paul Mac can mean anything. Mm. Um, whereas before, I think it really meant a specific thing. <clears throat> and um, yeah, so I'm happy to do more albums now, but I've, I feel a kind of freedom of they could sound like anything. Or yeah. They could being any although having said that I, I did a track with Willaris K recently Ooh. and it was so much fun <laughs> that it was like I kind of feel like doing a dancey record again it's been there's been enough time where I can yes. do a sort of an abstract banging record it'd be really fun as well it. but it's kind of felt like this this one had to happen first because I just needed to kind of get this out of my system to sort of reboot and it, then it go somewhere feel else like that. it feels like a fresh clean slate for you I know, I, and I had this really, really beautiful conversation with Daniel Johns where I sent it to him before it came out, and he loved it and wrote back immediately, and then wrote back six hours later, going, "Just, just been listening to it," and um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but it was like it was when we first met. I was living up in the Blue Mountains, and I took him up there, and we we're working on a couple of it's not rock and Silverchair remixes and stuff, and I was playing him all this weird ass electronic music, just going, "Look, this is whole other world out there," and we're so evangelistic about it you know and then it was really cute his comment back was um wow this album sounds like the music you played me 20 years ago in in the sense of the freedom that i had and how experimental it was and it was like all right i've gone back to the thing that i really really loved in the first place before it kind of got a bit choked by the industry i suppose that must be a really nice feeling though kind of somewhat going full circle yeah yeah i mean it's just it's weird it's because when you've been around for a long time, it's because a lot of people make music for a while and then they get a job. But it's like, I've been, you know, doing it for 30 years or whatever. It's like, it's weird just navigating through that territory of, of I don't know, if, if you're not, not that, you, you know, you can't help but be career focused for a while, but then it's also at, at the heart of it, you need to get back to 
what you're on about and what connects with you and what's real and all of that stuff. Yeah. And this was kind of that, I think. Right now, we're going to take it to the first uh, quote-unquote single of mesmerism. It's called Cataplexy by Paul Mack, who we've had the privilege of speaking to for the last 30 minutes or so right here on For The Record. Don't go anywhere. We've got so much more to chat about, listen to. So stick around. This is Cataplexy.
would you when you're talking about influences from this album i kind of i don't really know where to start because i i hear so many different different styles of electronic music like i i think on seven seven years and seven minutes i kind of hear a um a slight I, like minimal minimalism is probably not what i would use to describe this record but i hear um something like the field or like that really like minimalist approach where it's just like all kind of build i think you just hit the nail on both heads because it the chord progression is roughly based on inspiration from a steve reich piece and i did get to see the field in new york on their first amazing album which i totally relate the two it's just super that uh that eighth note pulse thing but you know over a sort of small glitch of sound but i did have a really what I thought was a beautiful piano chord progression that felt like um, Steve Reich's, you know, music radio music, musicians or whatever. So I had this really cool pattern where I was trying to, sitting at the piano, if I move that inner voice there, you get that chord. If I move that bottom voice down, you get that chord. So I came up with this, I don't know, 12 chord progression thing and wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And then when I was studying at the con, there's this really cool... Um, drummer teacher uh, called Simon Barker who has this class called I think it's embodied rhythm or something and you, there's no essays or anything you've got to sit around but you've got to clap these weird patterns from this weird number diamond series where if you you know you end up with like three three four three four three four three three like oh, they all add up mm. to the same thing but you it was the idea is that you start to embody you just sort of get into your body more when it comes to thinking about rhythms and how they come out
Six Years in Seven Minutes is the name of that one, and up before it was Cataplexy, which is, as Paul said, probably one of the only ones that could have been out as a single, as it's one of the only ones that has a four-to-the-four beat on it, or, or a beat of any kind of nature. And so what was it that... Uh got you linked up with Kim Moyes um, from Here to Hell? <laughs> Kim, well, Kim, I've known forever. Um, uh, because I suppose, if you think, it, it's it's hard to, even now with, with the students that I teach, it's, it's hard to imagine a time when it was really split. You're either into rock music or into electronic music and never the twain shall meet sort of vibe. And so I suppose... In the 90s, people that were doing dance music, it was a very small crew, it was a very small family, and people did know each other because you bump into them at clubs. And um, So I knew Kim from then. Um, we did lots of crossover. I'd remix the presets. The presets supported the dissociatives um, before they got way bigger than the dissociatives. So it's more like, I mean, we'd always known each other, and then I hadn't seen him forever. And he popped in one day and was like, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, do you want to hear this weird new shit that I'm working on? And he's like, yeah, no, please. And I played in Flamenco, which is probably the weirdest track on the album. It's 10 minutes. And it's like, can you can we just not talk for 10 minutes and let me play this thing? And I did. And he was just like, ah, oh, this is nourishment. Because he could hear, I think, as somebody who's been around for a long time as well, I think he, he could hear the freedom in it, that it was just this... It just went somewhere that was not prescribed um, and so offered to release it because I hadn't really thought about as I said like releasing it like who do you release it through yeah. so I don't know who's going to be interested in this shit and then so Kim totally was Kim and Mike when they offered to release it which was and got really excited it, it went from sort of like yeah it's going to be great we'll do a double vinyl pack and <laughs> went to the digital download only but anyway it got there <laughs> I think it's like a perfect pairing, though. Yeah, no, I, and it's been it's been really cool to be honest, reconnecting with Kim because I suppose it was probably a ten-year period where we hadn't seen each other, and then to come back on um, enthusiasm for music again was a really beautiful way to sort of rekindle the friendship. You kind of mentioned um, maybe about veering off into somewhat. Uh, not unfamiliar territory, but comparatively to this record, um, unfamiliar territory. Would you do as your next step, like a really up tempo, kind of like over the top dance number? Um, I, I kind of like big, expansive dance that doesn't necessarily sit within the genre. I mean, the only thing I have done is that Will RSK track, which isn't out yet, but it was like, it was so much fun just releasing back into that world again it mm. felt like early days of itchy and scratchy it was just really really good fun um which did make me sort of feel like oh i really should do more of that but i think it's more i do really like working with other people because otherwise i do get trapped in my melancholy so it's really good to have somebody else to bounce off so but it feels i don't know who knows what's next it's i kind of love that you're not really like feel like you're confined by any sort of traditionalists. Just about to say that. Uh, Well, it's it's more like, I suppose with the collapse of the music industry, there's a kind of freedom of like, Mm. I don't expect that any of, if I was to write straight up music, 
I don't know how I'd make a living out of it. So if that's the case, then why not just make something really weird and deep that you believe in that can connect with people on a different level? So there's a kind of freedom in that, which means, yeah, I have to have a job, which is why I teach and do other things. But the music that I choose to make can be whatever the fuck it wants. Yeah. It doesn't have to be trying so hard to fit into some kind of format that's going to make you money, which I think is really liberating in lots totally. of ways. It must be a lot more enjoyable to make as well when you kind of... I think that's the goal. From here on in, that's kind of what I want to do, is just make things that I feel really passionate about and that hopefully other people will find um, intriguing and give them some kind of emotional payoff. That's a nice place to end up. It kind of... I mean, it really shows in your work. This is the music that I maybe not have wanted to make forever, but this is some of the best music I've made in my career. I definitely feel that way listening to to your new record. I do feel like that, which is really a really lucky and really nice place to end up. But it's like, that's what I want to do with my music. It's just come from that same place. Some very sage advice from Paul Mack (laughs) right here on For The Record. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show and spilling your guts out to us. Oh, thanks. You don't get a chance to deep dive like that very often, so thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Uh, That's us wrapping up For The Record right here, but you can listen back to the incredible Paul Mack breaking everything down on his album Mesmerism uh, at fbiradio.com slash programs. Just click on For The Record. You'll see the album cover right there waiting for you. We're gonna, we've been playing underneath a little bit of flamenco, but we're going to let the track uh, ring out right now until Deeper Allen welcomes you with lunch. So stick around on FBI 94.5.